All right, so as we go through Ezekiel, there's some things that I need you to remember because we, we just are wrapping up a large section of judgment against Jerusalem, Israel, and then we have a large section of judgment against, well, it's not that large, but a big section against judgment against the nations, and then we're going to have the fall of Jerusalem, and that's 33 chapters. So we will all forget about the, the outline that Ezekiel gave us in Ezekiel chapter 11. So I'm going to kind of try to lay it out for you so we, so we don't forget. The book of Ezekiel starts with Ezekiel, a priest who had been taken into captivity, living in a refugee camp outside of Babylon at the Kabar Canal. On his 30th birthday, the Lord comes to him in a vision and Ezekiel declares, Hey, the glory of the Lord is here. Now, for Ezekiel, there's a trigger going off for him. Because where's the glory of the Lord supposed to be? It's supposed to be at the temple, right? So as we go through Ezekiel, we'll find out why is the glory of the Lord here with Ezekiel. And this is an important concept to the story because all the people in the refugee camp think that God's glory and hope is in Jerusalem. But what God's declaring in chapter 1 is his glory, his presence, is in the refugee camp with a, a future generation yet to come that will come back to the land. Now, as Ezekiel is looking at this, we see early on in the, in the book of Ezekiel the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem. And if you pay attention, the glory of the Lord departs from Jerusalem and goes east toward Babylon where we saw it in chapter 1, right? The glory of the Lord coming before Ezekiel on his 30th birthday, the day where he would have been, uh, um, what do they call it, installed as priest because he was of a priestly family. Instead, on his 30th birthday, God calls him a prophet. So, so as we look, we see three sections dealing with God's judgment. So we're trying to understand, why is the glory of the Lord left Jerusalem? Why is it in Babylon? What's going on? And so you have basically 33 chapters of judgment. First uh, section is going to deal with judgment against Israel. We've concluded that section. Then the second section is judgment of the nations because we talked about it last week. All the world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God doesn't just own Jerusalem or Israel. He made it all, right? It's all his. So he, he is going to judge the nations. And then in chapter 33, we'll see the fall of Jerusalem. And that will conclude the first half. Now in chapter 11, the second half of chapter 11, first half deals with all these judgments and things that are coming. But the second half deals with the hope of God changing the heart of his people, taking a heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh so that they might be able to obey or respond to God. So you have this section of hope from chapters 34 to the end of the book is the section of the hope in God in the book of Ezekiel. And it's going to first deal with God's hope for the nation of Israel, and then it's going to deal with God's hope for the nations, for the, for the world, and finally God's hope for all of creation. And so we'll see that at the end of the book. But first, we got to get through the middle. And so we find ourselves tonight looking at Tyre. Three chapters devoted 
to God's judgment against Tyre. And there's a reason for that. Because the king of Tyre, the prince of Tyre, is going to be set alongside another character, a divine being who in Genesis chapter 3 was a part of the fall. You see a very similar chapter in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 14. Same thing. You have a real king being uh, prophesied against, right? The, the prince of Tyre is a real person. The king of Tyre, he's focused in on, on this person, but he's comparing it to a divine being that fell in the beginning of creation. And so as we look at it tonight, this is this almost this whole chapter is going to be devoted to this person and this comparison that's being made. So he begins in, in Ezekiel 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud. So what's the first issue? Pride, right? Do we know that God hates a proud heart? So if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you should know God hates pride. Why? Because pride is the opposite of humility. Humility will submit to the Lord. Pride will buck against the system. Push back. Kick the goads. Fight. So here you have the prince of Tyre. The first thing the Lord says, your heart is proud. Your heart is proud. And you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not a God. So this prophecy is directed to the man, the king, the prince, the ruler over Tyre. But he's going to compare him. We'll see it as we kick into chapter 11 between another person who said, I will lift my throne above the most high. You're going to have this exact comparison. The heart of rebellious man, a rebellious ruler in the city of Tyre being judged by God, that is a representation or a mirror image of Satan's heart. And so he's going to develop this correlation. Now he said, this king is making this proclamation, I am a God. Now you guys know in the ancient world, a lot of people made that proclamation, right? A lot of kings that declared they were God. That's so we can get absolute obedience to the authority of the one standing before him. It's funny because anytime God judges one of those guys, he says, you are no God, you are man. And ultimately, he's going to make that charge. You will die like a man. You are saying, this guy, the prince of Tyre, I sit in the council of gods. So the Bible has this thing called the divine council that we see in a couple of places in the book of Kings that that illustrates for us that God himself and Jesus Christ, his son, sits as chairman of the board, the council, the divine council. And the divine council is, a couple of times in scripture, called on to deal with specific things. The Bible uses those exact phrases. Now, people don't like to park on it very much, but the Lord will go to his council and say, what shall I do? And the council will come forward with answers. Uh, if you want precise area i'll give it to you after the sermon but it's kings i want to say kings 21 but we'll 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 find it together and uh, and i'll show you where it's at but here he's saying look i'm the god i'm the chief i'm the king of all the gods sitting in the council of the gods telling them what to do how they should move but the lord is the, and then he says on the heart of the seas 
Tyre, remember, is an island. Typically, in the ancient world, the gods lived where? They lived on the mountains. You go to Greek, every, every city, in every, every place in Greece that you go and you visit these places in Greece, they all have their temples in the same place, on top of the mountain, overlooking the city. The gods are always on the mountain, Mount Olympus, Mount Zion. These are, these are descriptions of places where the gods are. But the, but the prince of Tyre, he's like, I'm, I sit on the seas. Now, the seas also represent chaos. So he's saying, I'm the head of the council of all the gods. I'm in charge of all the universe. I sit or reign over chaos. Now, we're going to see why he felt this way in a minute. But right now we see that this king is making a claim to divinity, right? I am God. But the Lord charges, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. Now, this causes a lot of scholars to ask a couple of questions. You guys know, or you should know, that Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah are contemporaries. So Daniel is right now in Babylon doing the things that, that we read about in the book of Daniel. At the same time, Ezekiel is in the refugee camp doing the things Ezekiel is doing. At the same time, Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem doing the things that God has called him to do. The book of Daniel is not written during the time of the prophecies of Ezekiel. Now, there's two possibilities. One, hey, it would be big news to the refugees if a refugee was the second most powerful guy in the country. And even though you're in a refugee camp, you're still just outside of Babylon, which is where Daniel is, right? So the idea that they would talk about the wisdom of Daniel and his ability to solve Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you guys remember the story, right? It's not totally far-fetched. There's other groups that will say this is a character from, uh, from mythology called Danel. And Danel was a, a, a hero that was known for his wisdom and his righteousness. Uh, the, the, the epic is from the Akot Ek Ek Boy. That's hard to say. You say it. A-Q-H-A-T. How do you say that? Uh, okay, we'll go with that. And it's a Ugaritic text from the time of Ezekiel. So it's possible Ezekiel saying, you know, uh, he's, he's declaring, hey, you're, you're even wiser than the, than the heroes in our, in our uh, mythology books. It's possible one of those two. Either way, you have him declaring himself to have secret wisdom and understanding and wealth that you have made uh, uh, you have made wealth for yourself. Gather gold and silver into your treasury. So he's making a claim to be God, making a claim to have divine authority. I sit on the seas. I rule over all of these things. I've made myself wealthy. So I have, I have uh, uh, this divine wealth all around me, and I have divine knowledge. I know everything. So this is the proclamation that this person is declaring this king by your great wisdom in your trade you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth so he's dealing with all of this pride so first ezekiel lays out the call who's he talking to then 
He gives the word of the Lord. Verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most, most ruthless of the nations. They will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom. They will defile your splendor. They will thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the sea. So, hey, you're ruling over the seas, but you're going to die. Go to the pit. There's not going to be a resurrection for you, certainly not a resurrection unto life. And then in verse 9, he says, So will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are a man and no God? In the hands of those who slay you, you will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So the Lord is saying, look, you make these proud, boasting proclamations, but you need to realize that those proud boasts don't equal reality. You can say whatever you want to say. When the enemy is at the gates, you, you as God will not be able to deliver yourself or your people because, as the Lord will declare at the end of each of these prophecies, I am the Lord. It's me. I am the king of all the universe. I am in charge. I'm in charge. And, you know, sometimes that's a hard thing for us to, to re remember and hold on. Sometimes, like Nebuchadnezzar, we're lifted up in pride and we look around and we say, Lord, look at the kingdom I have built. Right? But what was it that the Lord taught Nebuchadnezzar? Well, you didn't build that. I did. I gave that to you. And so here... You have the pride of Tyre, and you have the pride of Tyre now going to be compared, the pride of Tyre compared to the pride of Satan, of the serpent, of the shining one in the beginning of Genesis 3. He says in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So now he's describing that day in creation when the Lord created the, the character we know as Satan. He's saying you were the signet of perfection. The authority that was given to Satan to to uh, hold the place. In fact, the, the title, the name Satan's not a name. It's a, it's a title. It's a job. Satan means accuser. The accuser. And so he's, he's saying, look, you were perfect. You were full of wisdom. Perfect in beauty. You were in Eden in the garden of God. So this is a character going all the way back to Genesis 3, right? The comparison of the pride of this king entire and the pride of this creature that goes back. This creation of God back in Eden. He says, every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. The point of each one of those gems is this. They all shine. If you go back to the Hebrew and you look at the word for, for the serpent, uh, you can also describe that word as the shining one. The shining one. The idea that the serpent was a snake or a dragon or some kind of creature is, uh, is probably incorrect. 
what it, what it was was the Satan, the accuser, this created angel that was there in the garden. That's why you have uh, Eve walking up to him, not because the Garden of Eden was like Narnia and all the animals talked, but you have a shining one. Listen, it's important that you understand that in ancient literature, anytime that the ancients wanted to get across to the people reading the book that the gods were talking, you know how they did it? An animal spoke. So you have the shining one. Now, I don't know, I wasn't there, but you have the shining one there, right? At the beginning saying to the woman, hey, uh, hath God really said you shall not, right? Gathered in that place, why, why are all these gemstones talked about? I don't believe these are the gemstones of the high priestly robe. I don't, I don't think this character is Adam. I think this character is Satan. And here you have them speaking all these things. They have one thing in common. They all sparkle. They all shine. They all glimmer. You were crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. So when the Bible talks about cherubim and seraphim, as we look through the Bible, as far as I can tell, there's only four. The Bible also calls them the living creatures. Four faces. Where are they always at? They're always around the throne of God. What are they always declaring? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We did, uh, uh, Ezekiel saw him in his vision when the, when the chariot throne of God uh, approached him. You have these. So here, this is a cherub. Cherubim or seraphim, they're the same word. Two different languages, same word. They simply mean throne guardian. These are the guardians around the throne of God. They never have to turn their head. You can never sneak up on them because they can face every direction at the same time. They don't have to turn. They can move in every direction, whatever direction they want at the same time. And so you, he is, this person is an anointed guardian cherub. And here the Lord says, I place you on the holy mountain of God, right in the presence of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were right here. The Bible talks about Isaiah, right? When Isaiah saw the throne of God, you remember? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And, and he says, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And, and so the Lord has one of the cherubim take a, take a coal, right? A coal from the from the altar before God and he touches his lips and he says, your sins are purged. Here the Lord says, you walked in the midst of the fiery stones. You're, you're in the, you, you, were, you had access to the holiest place of all, to the presence of God Almighty himself. In the midst of the stones, you walked. He's in Eden. He's part of creation. His characteristics are perfection, preparation, his position. He had a position of authority as the accuser. In Revelation 9-11, perhaps this same being 
is the one called the angel over the bottomless pit. For they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in the Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he is called Apollyon. Both mean the same thing, destroyer. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tell us it's no wonder for even Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. You know, there are two large world religions that have their beginning because of an angel of light. Both of them had an interaction with an angel who came before him. Look, in the most, for the most part, I don't deny either account. I'm just saying that Paul would tell us that we are to test the spirits. You don't know. Just because an angel appears doesn't mean he's good, does it? Yeah. Muhammad was presented to the scriptures for, uh, for Islam. Joseph Smith was presented the scriptures for Mormonism, both. From an angel of light. And I have no reason to, to think that didn't occur. Because there is a real spiritual reality, isn't there? Isn't there a real devil, real Satan, real fallen angels, real demons? These things are real. So, so here is, we have this description of this one who is in Eden, who is beautiful and perfect. But look what it says in verse 15. You were blameless. In your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And the unrighteousness that was found was pride. He was filled with pride. He was proud of himself. And so you were blameless in your ways on the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you in the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned so i cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of god i destroyed you O guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire your heart was proud because of your beauty people always ask the same questions how is it possible that Someone could sin if they're in the presence of God. And, and we only ask that question because we haven't experienced the presence of God. But there was a group of people called the children of Israel. You guys are familiar with them, right? And they marched across the wilderness seeing miracle after miracle after miracle till they came to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the Lord told the people, stand back. Nobody touched the mountain. God himself is going to speak from the mountain and he's going to deliver to us the Ten Commandments. And so God came and spoke from Mount Sinai. So if you had been there, you would see this mountain suddenly covered with smoke and lightning and fire. And you would have heard from the top of this mountain the voice of God. And in less than 40 days, they're going to build a golden calf. And dance around it. And we say, well, that's because man's not perfect. Man's not perfect, no. Man, man is and has a tendency towards sin. But I have a hard, just as hard a time understanding that. As I understand an angel who's perfect and absolutely beautiful 
and becomes enamored with themselves. And when that occurs, the book of Revelation chapter 12 seems to hint at the red dragon who's cast out of heaven takes how many stars with him? Takes a third of the stars. That's a third of the angels in the presence of God who become the evil, fallen, angelic horde. Which you read about in the book of Revelation when you see this crazy army come. This is at least Jackie's interpretation. Um, there, in the book of Revelation, there's plenty of interpretations to go around. You pick the one you like. But there is a 200 million man army. People are always pointing to China. China's got the 200 million man army. Ooh, I don't think it's about China. The, the reason I don't think it is because the angel of the pit opens the pit, lets out all the worst of the demons, and part of that is a 200 million man army. I think it's 200 million demons. So when we, when we see the release of those things and you see they have a king, Apollyon, or Abaddon, who's their, who's their chief, I don't know how that's all going to play out. I know the end result is that God wins, that wicked is, the wicked are put down once and for all, and the righteous will reign forever in the kingdom of God. That part I know. I absolutely don't, I'm not worried about it, but I think that's the point of the Lord telling us the story over and over again, but but I look at him and I go, how do you get that many? Revelation chapter 20 has the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a perfect, righteous, absolutely just kingdom that people will live in for a thousand years of perfect peace. And in Revelation 20, it would appear that Satan is loosed and it takes him one season to get an army, Gog and Magog, we'll see them when we get to Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog who, re, who will rebel against holy and perfect God, that they don't have to wonder if he exists. They've seen him for a thousand years. The reason angels fell and the reason man has a propensity to sin is a part of this... Uh, thing that God hates and that is pride 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 got into the heart of Satan or Lucifer pride got into him and brought the fall of Lucifer and here the Lord is declaring this he's saying you know look you're you're cast out your heart was proud because of your beauty all I can go by is what God says what did God say happened his heart was proud because of his beauty. And what? Corrupted your wisdom. What does sin do? It takes God's perfect gifts and it perverts them. It corrupts them. And so what do you have? You have a corrupted wisdom for the sake of your splendor. All, all the being could think about was I will set mine, right? I will set my throne. I will be above the most high. And so the Lord says, I will cast you to the ground. I expose you before the kings to feast their eyes upon you. In Ezekiel, he's going to describe it later on as the feast of Leviathan, the great sea monster. And he's going to say the sea monster is slain. And they're going to look and go, this the one? This is the one who caused all that trouble? Well, it won't be because he's tiny or weak or insignificant. 
but it will be, be it will be because it is finally over. The rebellion of the angels and the rebellion of men will be wrapped up in a in a single battle, right? And then there will be the throne judgment and the wicked and the righteous separated for all time. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out of your midst and it consumed you. I turned you to ash on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the people are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now you have a parallel passage in Isaiah 14, 12 to 17. And I want this to be clear. Ezekiel 28, especially 11 through 19, Isaiah 14, 12 to 17 are prophecies about human kings being compared to the fall of Satan. So we learn something about the fall of Satan, but these are specific prophecies toward, spoken of toward kings that were sitting on thrones in lands, in Isaiah's case, it's the king of Babylon. In Ezekiel's case, it's the king of Tyre. Each one is going to be compared with the being we know as Satan in regard to their fall. Of the 20 different elements we see in Ezekiel 28, 14 of them in the exact same form are found in Isaiah 14. So there's only six differences in what is given to us in Ezekiel compared to what we see in Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah 14, 12 says this, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly as, as, or I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Again, the idea of the mount of the assembly is in the council of God. I'm, I'm going to be in charge. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the grave, to the far reaches of the pit which is ultimately where we'll see him in the book of Revelation, right? Cast into the pit. And he will be no more forever. So while there will be other leaders who are ungodly men, there will be a day in which Satan is ultimately judged and he will be put away. Now, in, at the end of chapter 28, we have a prophecy about Sidon. Sidon. Remember, there's seven nations that we'll see prophetically in the oracle of the nations. He says, so the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Sidon and prophesy against her and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst that you may know that I am the Lord when I execute judgment in her and manifest my holiness in her. So the Lord is declaring through it all. The point is, that he would be glorified, that he will be known, that they will understand who he is, and ultimately, he, his holiness will be seen there. He says in verse 23, For I will send a pestilence into her, and blood into her streets, and the slain will fall in her midst, and the sword that is against her on every side, and they will know that I am the Lord. We see these same 
uh, uh, judgments in the book of Revelation. We call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? We see the same thing. War, famine, pestilence. War, famine, pestilence. Over and over in the Old Testament scriptures, New Testament scriptures, these are the methods through which God's judgment is poured out. He's saying, look, this is what's going to come against Sidon. And then the point is that you will know. Now, we've talked about this in, in terms of the judgment of the nations. There's a reason why the Lord says this over and over again. Because all of these nations following false deities, the Lord is saying, on the day when these things take place, you're going to know I'm the Lord. Not Baal or Ashtoreth or Ashtart or whatever other false deities may have been worshipped in their day. Then you will know I'm the Lord. It's me revealing himself uh, to the nations. And the point being that there will be a day when sin is judged for everyone. There will be a day for Israel. There'll be a day for Jerusalem. There'll be a day for every nation under heaven. There'll be a day for Buell. There will be a day for me. There will be a day. And when we stand in that place of judgment with the expectation of the wrath of God, unless we are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, the wrath is what we will receive. Right? Because it's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us white as when a man recognizes that incredible, beautiful gift that Christ has given, provided. So he gives a promise in verse 24. Now for the house of Israel, so here's what I want you to see. For the house of Israel, there will be no more a briar or to prick or a thorn to hurt among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. What's the point when we look at all these judgment, 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 judgment? The point is there's a day when God will remove all the little things we're scared of that live under our bed. All the things we're afraid of that live in the closet. There will be no more thorns to prick you. There will be no more things to be hurt by. There will be no more things to be afraid of. Then they will know I am the Lord God. Verse 25, thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from among the peoples, among those whom they have been scattered, and I manifest my holiness in them, in the sight of all the nations, I manifest, I manifest my holiness. This is a direct revelation of the appearance of Christ. The next time the glory of God will stand in the temple, they will dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob. They will be secure they will build houses, plant vineyards. They will dwell securely when I execute judgments on their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. And they will know I am the Lord. The Lord is saying, look, I'm going to. There is a day when all that is put away. And, and why does God tell us that every time? How long does it take you to be afraid of the next thing? Not very long. And we're afraid again. And the Lord knows that because we live in a fallen place, right? Full of wickedness, full of evil, full of enemies on every side. But the Lord says, I will judge them and I will judge you. And I will deliver 
the righteous that are not righteous because of things they do. They are righteous because God has manifested his holiness in them. He has manifested his holiness in them. Paul would write, he made him who knew no sin become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I will manifest my holiness in them. Goes back to the promise we talked about in Ezekiel 11 and the hope in the chapters that are yet coming. But the promise here is there will be a day. And the important thing to pull from it is there will be a day when all that, all that is wrong is going to be done. It'll be over. It'll be finished. All that is broken. Anybody excited to see that day? Every, every scar, I think, that, that we receive on earth, there's going to be some measure of healing for. There's going to be a measure of healing for the nation, right? Because he says the tree of life will be there and its leaves are for what? The healing of the nations, different fruit every month, going to bear different fruit every month, leaves for the healing of the nations. There's a day in which Jesus Christ will make all things new. Amen? We look forward to that time. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Uh, we can open your word, God, and I pray, Lord, that you would you would challenge us through your word, Lord, that we want to walk in obedience to you. We want to uh, be men and women who are obedient, God, who are saying, I want to say the things Jesus said. I want to I do things like Jesus did. I want to honor my father when I go, where I go, whatever I do, I want I want things that are going to glorify him in my life. I want to honor him. And I want to be a, be a witness to the glory of God in the land of the living. I want to be a faithful witness, Lord, that can point to who you are and what you've done in my life. And make the proclamation. That it is through Jesus Christ, my great God and Savior, that I am who I am. Just as Paul would declare, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am a broken, sinful man made perfect by the blood of Christ. By the atonement that he has given and Lord, may we, in response to that, in response, God, we turn from our sin, our pride, our whatever our thing is, we turn from it and we, and we cling to Christ. We cling to that which is going to perfect us, God. Lord, I pray we each one would Hear the call of repentance to turn from whatever we're clinging to that is not Christ.
and turn toward Christ. Repent and believe. And God, may you do a perfect work in and through us. Lord, may we be able to honor who you are and all that you have done. And Lord, as we close out tonight, I pray that we would be able to acknowledge with all the saints the value of our great God and Savior. We give you praise in Jesus' name.